Meanwhile, you get a guy who's who's made bomb after bomb, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger movies. Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night. My style is always to announce that welcome to another Thursday night on this show. I'm Josh Hadley. With me almost as always is Cecil eh, Trachtenberg. Yes, uh, my style is to always disagree with you because you're wrong. We agreed on a couple of things in the past year and that was scary to all of our listeners. I know. It was very scary. We just agreed on that. Oh my god. Oh shit. And as you can hear, Peter Bah Gajic is here as well. <laughs> yes, uh, Peter Bah Gajic, and uh, Peter always uh, stabs people in the eye. Uh, I think I stole that one from Fulci. Maybe it's the other way around. But that's my trope. That's true. You know what my trope is? Adam and Eve promos. Go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free clit bumper, and for U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now tonight I want to talk about filmmakers who have a specific style to them or certain tropes that pop up in every one of their movies. This actually stems from just last night I watched Rob Zombie's 31. I don't want to talk about Rob Zombie too much because Rob Zombie will be coming up again in about another month and a half or so on this show. With 31, it doesn't matter whether I liked the movie or hated it. It felt like a Rob Zombie movie. From the opening frames, Rob Zombie's style permeates every frame of this, and that's one thing he's he's good for, is he branded himself with a specific style. When you think of a stylized director, which one do you go for where you immediately, maybe you can miss the credits, and within 10 seconds you can go, this is such and such director just based on the style this is shot in? <laughs> one, uh, I'll go uh, one in a bad way. I always know when it's a Paul Greengrass movie uh, because the camera does not stop moving and it doesn't stop being edited for two seconds. That's in a case of like a bad thing. You know what? That could also be a Dark Castle film from the early 2000s. No, the Dark Castle films were not as bad as Greengrass. Like they at least had some sort of continuity. And even um, on like the slower scenes where there's people, there was just dialogue. It's people sitting around a table talking. They at least will have the camera pan and move back and forth. This with Greengrass, even if there's somebody sitting there using a telephone, they have to shake the camera like there's an earthquake going on. Greengrass, that, that's in like a negative way. <laughs> um, okay, uh, th then do you have do you have a positive do one I have... where you like the director and that style? Uh, Kevin Smith. Because Kevin Smith has a lot of very long-held dialogue shots. You can tell right away. I mean, I would have already known that the movie was his because I thought, you know, but I think even if I didn't know, 
just the the way that it's shot. There's a lot of static shots of people talking. There's a lot of, I mean, it's not, he doesn't kind of overdo his shots. Like, there's some directors who know how to, like, get, like, these really amazing shots. I'm not saying that he doesn't. Like, he's kind of showed his chops with movies like Red State and whatnot. But his signature is always going to be just very good, well-framed shots that usually go on and there's a lot of dialogue within them. So it's like, he likes to let, you know, longer takes and it's not 50 gajillion different cuts and different angles and everything. So that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to go with him because he's some Somebody who uh, doesn't really get a lot of uh, props for for really growing as a director. I gotta go with John Carpenter. I feel like, especially with his just his movies from the '80s and late '70s, you can always tell you're going into a John Carpenter movie the second it starts because there's always the recognizable style of music. There's always that recognizable style of of cinematography. There's a lot of shadow, yet there's always a lot of color as well. There's a great mood to it. Um, he loves those def- long Panavision mm-hmm. lenses too. Absolutely, his his movies look gorgeous because of it too. Not any director quite has his uh his style his vibe it's like i said you always know it's going to be a john carpenter movie the second it starts you know a movie like they live or escape from new york or the thing they always have these really cool it's the way that his films begin there's like this really cool build up both with the the sound the soundtrack kind of starting out slow and low and then it all builds up till it it finally reaches its uh, its epic peak which uh, sets the pace for the rest of the movie i've i've always really enjoyed that about his work and i always will and I, I agree with you. When it comes to Carpenter, there's also something that he, he he started to to not do this as much later on. But early on, you'll notice how few close-ups he has because he loves that widescreen mm-hmm. lens so much. So much you'll notice how many wide shots. He almost all of his yeah. movies are shot predominantly in medium shots, and that's a unique trait. Yeah, like in, uh, it's a good example of that for both Halloween and even for They Live. Like Halloween starts with the shot of a house and you slowly pan in. They Live, you got the shot of the, the city street and the alleyway under the bridge. It slowly pans until you see, uh, you know, Roddy Piper just walking up in the distance. It's this massive shot that shows so much scenery, like the, the coldness of the city, all the, all the graffiti, uh, They Live scrolled on the wall. And then you finally see Roddy Piper walking up as again, the soundtrack, like, slowly builds up like that and it just like it gets you pulled into the movie in such a fucking awesome way like i love the way he he starts his films and the way they they transition and become more and more epic as the film goes along it's just so great well then you have other filmmakers who like i said with rob zombie he has a style you immediately know this is a Rob Zombie movie. There's just something with the way he, his, the lighting, the art direction and whatnot. You also have people like Michael Bay. You don't need to know Michael Bay directed a movie to go, this looks like a Michael Bay film. He has the certain <laughs> tropes he likes. Like, for one thing, everyone complains about Michael Bay as a filmmaker, but what they don't realize is he actually is a really good director. Look at how much he parallaxes, how much he always has something moving in the background of a frame. He's always implying mm-hmm. something is happening off camera. His his shots are never boring. He also likes that really low angle spin around an actor thing, which I think has kind of become his calling card. Because when you got somebody like Michael Bay, you also have somebody like Peter Berg. Peter Berg thinks he knows how to be Michael Bay, yet he doesn't seem to understand what parallax is or to have definition or depth within a frame or to have things moving in a frame. When you look at a movie like Battleship, that is such a Michael Bay wannabe movie that you're like, he's trying so hard to be Michael Bay. 
Oh, God. I mean, if you were to watch Battleship, uh, like, shortly after seeing Transformers, you would think it was actually not only Michael Bay, but that it was another Transformers movie. The color scheme, the robots from out of nowhere, like, the, the, the camera styles, everything really, really aped Michael Bay and, uh, to... Except he didn't understand why Michael Bay's films visually work. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Michael Bay, for, uh, like, as much as people give him grief, man, he knows how to make some beautiful shots. Like, I really, uh, I only have a problem with Bay, like, his ego aside, uh, I only really have a problem with Bay's Transformers movies. I genuinely like The Island, Bad Boys. Bad Boys 2 is one of the most visually beautiful films I've ever seen. Yeah, the only thing that I have a problem with Bay, uh, is that his movies tend to go on a little too long. Like, they could, they could definitely stand to trim a bit because they usually you know they just go on for like three hours and they could very well have gotten their point across in two the entire last half hour of bad boys 2 didn't need to be there i love armageddon but armageddon has 15 endings and it doesn't need 15 endings. <laughs> they really could have, you know, trimmed it down a bit. But his stuff is always just visually, uh, you know, amazing. There's always stuff happening. There's always beautifully shot. There's great camera angles. The guy has a phenomenal eye. And the thing was, he got his start in music videos because of that. And when he brought over a lot of his music video buddies to do the, the um, uh, Platinum Dune things, the thing is, the studios were looking at it, well, you know, we got Michael Bay and his these other guys are going to be just as good and it's like they're not seeing why like like not everybody has that skill because see so one of the things is when you look at his music videos like the divinals i touch myself or meatloafs i do anything for love but i won't do that they feel instantly like michael bay to the point where it's like he brought his music video skills to film in one of the rare cases it worked yeah that doesn't happen often no, it really doesn't, because if you look at all the other Platinum Dunes movies, they suck. Like, none of them really have the the skills that Bay does. Definitely a lot of uh, filmmakers, not just him, but yeah, all the Platinum Dunes guys that he brought in, all his, like, music video buddies, and just other, like, action-based filmmakers are trying to ape that style. Like, the over-color-corrected look, the very orange skin, uh, trying to make it look like there's always something going on in the background. But yeah, nobody does it quite the way Bay does. And yeah, people can talk as much crap about him as they want. You know, I myself detest uh, the Transformers movies, but he's got movies. Movies that I can watch over and over again. The island is until great I, until the day I'm dead. Yeah, like I love uh, the island, The Rock, Pain and Gain is a movie I watch like almost endlessly. Yeah, I, I, I really love his style. Um, and, and maybe he seems like a bit of a shyster as a human being, kind of like a used car salesman filmmaker. But you gotta hand hand off some credit to the guy for knowing what what works financially and for really knowing like how to set up a shot and use color and use like dynamic angles like his movies kind of are known for that that trope of the the michael bay shot which is that like low angle of the lead character and it pans across as they like stoically look off into the distance and it's like make fun of that all you want it looks fucking cool it's an it's absolutely just an awesome like hero shot like it's it just looks badass regardless of what actor you use it for like even nicholas cage doing that in the rock looks badass because it's like it's such a cool shot what about someone who his style waned, and that would be like Quentin Tarantino. I, re I recently watched From Dust Till Dawn, the original from 1996, for the first time since 1996 again last week. And it hmm. struck me as how much that movie feels like a Tarantino movie. And, yeah. then I started th and then I started thinking, 
Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, they don't feel like Tarantino movies. And then I, I, I looked back at like Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown and Pulp Fiction and I'm like, even Kill Bill, those all feel like Tarantino movies. For some reason, it seems like Tarantino doesn't make Tarantino-style movies anymore. Yeah, I I agree. His movies don't feel like Tarantino films anymore. I think that may have to do with uh, the fact that he's changed uh, editors. I believe after, I forget which movie it was, but I think after Inglorious Bastards, or even for Inglorious Bastards, he changed uh, he changed editors. I don't know if it was for that one, though, because that one, to me, still felt pretty Tarantino-ish, but uh, Django Unchained definitely doesn't. It doesn't have that... Um, because he, he loves his, his long shots, like, of people just, much like Kevin Smith, he likes having just a, a long, continuous shot of a, of a character, you know, putting out a monologue and holding on, on a very well-lit, angled shot. Like, especially in, uh, Pulp Fiction, like, during the diner scene, the character's about to rob the place, and it's like, he's using natural sunlight for, for shading and whatnot, and it just, it always holds on the character and lets them finish, like, an entire little speech or monologue or whatever, and you don't really see that with Django Unchained. It, it feels more, more close up, more, um, more, I guess, modern. Uh, there's a lot more cuts. With the last couple of movies, he's been tamed a little bit. Yeah, I think it's because of uh, the changes. Like, he used to have a, a consistent editor for all of his movies. And he's uh, recently changed that. And ever since he did, they're not bad. Like, I, I didn't hate Django Unchained. I, I enjoyed it enough. Um, I enjoyed looking... both Django Unchained and Hateful Eight. They just didn't feel like 90s Tarantino anymore. You know what happened? Yeah, they don't. Grindhouse. Oh. <laughs> Grindhouse was a monumental failure, and it was probably the last movie that really felt like old Tarantino. After that was mm. when he really kind of changed things up. I really think that that's kind of what was the turning point. We were talking about long takes. What about, like, Paul Thomas Anderson? You know if you're going into a PTA movie, it's going to have probably at least a, at least a half dozen shots where the camera follows somebody through a room, and it's a five- or six-minute uncut single take of something with music playing that's one of that that's a pta staple isn't it yeah i mean you do notice that a lot in his movies it's a little more subtle than some of the other um filmmakers tropes like like there's some that are a lot more noticeable like 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 a sergio leone movie for example like you will have a lot of those shots where like it holds on a character's uh expression and like the way their eyes are squinting and or or they'll hold on like a piece of scenery or something like that but with yeah with with paul thomas's it's a it is kind of a thing where like you'll notice it every now and then and you'll go hey this 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 happened in the last uh movie of his that i watched uh he he must kind of like that shot a lot of uh they're really well done just very long tracking shot i'm a sucker for a good tracking shot so i enjoy stuff like that and uh we don't mm. get uh with with today's style of filmmaking it's almost like the tracking shot is being phased out and so whenever i see a movie that has one i just i get all giddy because uh like something like children of men they they fudged it they were um it still looks like one you know amazing continuous tracking shot and uh so you know major kudos for trying to keep that alive speaking of that what about when when a filmmaker fakes something like that like the tracking shot for instance i love contact i think contact is an amazing movie when Robert Zemeckis directed that long, quote-unquote, tracking shot of Ellie hearing the signal, getting in her car, radioing the guys at the station, rushing back, rushing up all the stairs, it's one long, uncut, almost five-minute shot until I listen to the commentary track. 
That's about a dozen different shots composited together with CGI to make them seem uncut. That actually kind of angers me that, you know, to find out that that, like, tracking shot was faked. I don't, like, I, I don't know. I think that the, the, in the case of something like that, the logistics of putting that together are just astronomical and making all of that work. It just, it, it's, I mean, you've, you've worked in film, you know how hard it is. And to do that and then just, you know, to maybe get all the way close to the end and then have it blown one way or another, uh, you know, I can understand why they, they wanted to do it but they fudged it. So while I appreciate and I love a really good tracking shot and I love a legitimate tracking shot, I have more respect for when they, you know, when they do it. Something like that, I understand because it's not easy to pull off. That's another reason why a lot of people don't do it. Well, they call it movie magic for a reason. Sometimes editing just has to come into play. What about when a director has a certain style that is so recognizable that, like with Peter Berger and Michael Bay, even their own protégés steal it? And I would look at Sam Raimi and Scott Spiegel. Because Sam Raimi's style, immediately noticeable. He loves his POV shots. And Sam Raimi is able to make those shots work. But then you look at the Scott Spiegel stuff. Remember, Scott Spiegel was his writing partner and producing partner on numerous movies, Everything Scott Spiegel has touched tries to do that same POV thing, but for some reason it doesn't work under Scott Spiegel. Have you guys noticed that, that Scott Spiegel tries to be Sam Raimi, but doesn't quite understand why Raimi picks the POV shots that he does? He has POV shots of everything. Every object has a POV shot. Yeah, that's not kinda, That's not how yeah, Sam Raimi did to, uh... it. I forgot who directed. I actually thought Intruder was a Sam Raimi movie for a while, and I could see Sam why. Sam Raimi produced it. Yeah, you could see why because of all the POV shots. Like I thought it was wow, all these POV shots in a in a grocery store. This is kind of weird. Yeah, I can kind of see that that he's sort of like a lesser Sam Raimi. It's it's sort of the same thing with with the Platinum Dune stuff where they're all trying to ape uh, Michael Bay, where they're they're using things in Michael Bay movies, but not really no real reason for it. I can I can see that with uh, with movies like The Intruder. I I haven't seen uh, Hostel Three or uh, what was the what was the other one? Dust Till Dawn. Dust Till Dawn Two. Yeah, don't see Dust Till Dawn seen... Two or Three. Hey, guys, we're going to be doing a retro on the From Dust Till Dawn's early next year, oh, so we're going to have to sit well, regardless. Well, shit. Okay. Well, until that time, I have not seen uh, either Dust Till Dawn 2 or Hostel 3, so I can't really comment on those. But on Intruder, yeah, thinking back to it, there is a, there is a lot of pointless POV in that movie now that I think about it. I think that it's just um, he's worked uh, together with him for so long, and he never really had the opportunity to develop his own style, so he just kind of went with what he was already familiar with. And uh, I think that, you know, he, he's done good movies. I mean, I like Intruder, and I think Hostel 3 is actually really good. From Dust Till Dawn 2 uh, is absolute garbage, but I don't know. There might be some, There might be some story behind that. It just rush production or who knows but it's awful i think that he is a competent director but i don't really think that he has uh a style he's never really gotten out of Raimi's shadow he's never really gotten out of Raimi, and that's that's a tough one man because could you imagine you know i mean working let's say you worked with somebody like tarantino and then you went off and you tried to do something but you've been working with him for so long and you kind of start i mean you're always going to be compared to him and so i i don't know i mean with something like uh with Raimi, he's worked with them i mean since they were in in film school 
it's just, uh, I guess he's never really gotten beyond that. So, but his stuff is still good. You know, it's just, it's not Raimi. But even Raimi's stuff stinks now, unfortunately. <laughs> Let's look at a couple of people whose, whose styles are different than their, than what you would call their direction. Where you look at the movie and it's not necessarily like camera angles or anything like that, like in a Tarantino or a Michael Bay or a Rob Zombie. It's all about just somehow the vibe they give off. I'm thinking like Steven Spielberg or Joe Dante or Terry Gilliam. You don't even need to, they don't have a specific like camera angle that they love. But for some reason, as soon as you go into a Joe Dante movie, it feels like a Joe Dante movie. A Steven Spielberg movie feels like a Steven Spielberg movie, even to the point of Poltergeist, when that's supposed to be a Toby Hooper movie, there are parts where you're just like, wow, this feels like a Steven Spielberg movie. Terry Gilliam. His movies feel like a Terry Gilliam film. Mm-hmm. Just through and through. Yet you can't, you can't hit one's particular, well, that's because of this with these certain directors. I actually just recently brings to mind Barry Sonnenfeld. Barry Sonnenfeld, he loves his zooms, like a lot of uh like CG zooms. Like I mean it's still good, but you can kind of tell like it's a little off. Like he did Men in Black, fortunately he did Wild Wild West, but uh he he's a good director and uh just recently Nine Lives and I'm watching it and I'm like this feels kind of like Men in Black. And then yeah, I'm like, oh, I didn't even know Sonnen. You know, I think they kind of had his name not really prominently on the movie. and uh, But it totally felt like a Sonnenfeld movie. So, yeah, you have a lot of people who it's just the way that they do it. It just feels like one of their movies, uh, even though it necessarily doesn't have all of their earmarks. It's just something about it. Joe Dante, absolutely. Like ev- like every movie he does, it just has a certain vibe to it, a certain just feel that you you know it's a Dante movie. Absolutely agree with everything you guys have said about that. And another director I can uh, I can bring up that fits that example is anytime I watch a anytime I watch a Paul Verhoeven movie, it I can always tell it's him. He has this. Uh, it's not even necessarily in the angle. I think it's just the. It's much like in the way Carpenter has a certain lens that he uses. There's always a certain vibe to a Paul Verhoeven film. It's it's in his film stock. Uh, Total Recall, RoboCop, even Starship Troopers. There's a certain grit. To the film stock, there's something very grimy and dirty about the way, uh, like Total Recall and Robocop look, especially in Robocop with like the urban environment and everything. Everything fits really well and it just fits with the whole social satire and social commentary. Like he, he makes the world look like a very dirty, dirty place and it, and it fits with the type of stories that his films tell. Like I've always really liked that about Verhoeven. Well, and sometimes that can come down to maybe they found a cinematographer that they reuse a lot. Yeah. Like like someone like Dean Cundey. It's really hard to quantify what Dean Cundey does, but you can immediately look at a movie and you're like, this was shot by Dean Cundey. It's, (laughs) he, he uses a, a lot of light reflecting off things. Everything feels very wet. Even if it's a movie set in the desert, somehow it has like a moisture to it, if that makes any sense. Am I making, am I making sense? Do you guys understand what I mean by you can immediately go, Dean Cundy shot this? Yeah. And, and, you know, so sometimes it is the cinematographer and other times there are just certain things that pop up. For instance, like Lucio Fulci. You know if you're watching a Lucio Fulci film, he doesn't have a signature style so much as he has tropes that he brings up. If you're watching a Fulci film, somebody's getting something in their eye in a disturbing close-up. And the cinematography is going to be very 
pretty and soft focus looking when it happens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Cause like, even when he does something outside of his wheelhouse, like, even something like Conquest has eye damage to it. Or even when he did a western, like Massacre Time with, with Franco Nero, a guy gets a whip in the eye. You start to go, are you working something out here, Fulci? You seem to have a thing for eyes. I think it's more so that it's what's effective. Like, I mean, I, like, I cringe when there's somebody getting something in their eye. And I think that he just knows that that's really effective. I mean, and so he goes with it. So, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe he just really enjoys that because he knows it wigs people out. I'm going to, what am I going to do with this time? I'm going to stick something in somebody's eye this way. I think he just knows that it, as Cecil said, he knows that it wigs people out. He knows that it's, uh, it's something that a lot of people look at and are just, mortified and, and disgusted by it because that's the type of filmmaker he is he's he knows exactly what he does he's incredibly he was an incredibly talented filmmaker his movies look amazing when it all comes down to it he was like mainly a, a horror and exploitation guy and what's more like almost uh almost nothing is more horrific and exploitive than like seeing this eye get completely mutilated like in a lot of his movies do like in new york ripper with the razor blade or in in zombie uh with the with the the sharp piece of like wood from the door getting rammed into a chick's eye he he just knows how to how to make people feel queasy and and disgusted because of course he would he was he was a talented uh exploitation and horror filmmaker he knows what he's doing what about somebody like john woo you know a John Woo movie, there's going to be a gunfight with doves in the background. It's just <laughs> going to happen, you know? Dual handguns. Yep. Yes, it'll, it, it'll Mexi- have uh, dual, dual handguns. handgun Mexican standoffs. <laughs> with doves. With doves. Yeah. You know, it, but then you have other ones who are who are harder to quantify, like like David Lynch. David Lynch, all of his movies are so different, yet you immediately go, that's David Lynch. See, unlike with, like, Joe Dante, Lynch's style is a little more esoteric, but yet still feels Lynchian. I think some filmmakers lose that, like, to go back to Fulci. You know, Fulci was more comfortable with horror, but he also directed sci-fi movies like The New Gladiators. He directed Conquest, which was a fantasy movie. And I like both those movies. They don't feel like Fulci, like like Massacre Time. It's a, it's a straight-up Western. It doesn't feel like Fulci all of a sudden. You think mm. some directors just kind of need to stay within a certain genre? I wouldn't say that they need to stay in a certain z- genre, but I mean, there are certain directors that just work better in that genre. It's the genre that they're more passionate about. So uh, it just is what works for them. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that every director deserves to branch out and try new things. You never know what you might be able to achieve. You might be able to learn from trying a different genre. I mean, if you want to stick with one genre and it's what works for you, fine. But if you want to try new things, they should absolutely be able to do that. I mean, that's what has screwed a lot of directors' abilities to grow over is that they do one type of movie it ends up being a really big hit and then they can't get production to do any other type of movie hey i just did a horror movie and now i want to do a comedy well we don't want a comedy from somebody who's a horror guy it's like well you know the uh, it, it doesn't mean you know let let them try different things let them uh grow and learn uh you know unless they you know they want to stick with one thing fine if they want to grow let them i just kind of look at it as like who was asking for a Lucio Fulci Western? Eh, but why not? <laughs> you know? It could have been cool. 
he could have been burning himself out. You know, maybe he was tired of doing horror and he wanted, you know, he, he had a dream to do a Western and he did a Western. It was actually, okay, here's the thing about Massacre Time. It was actually a good movie. It just didn't feel like a Fulci movie is my, my mm-hmm. only complaint. It felt more, uh, felt a lot more like Sergio Leone. Like that's kind of what he was aping with it, that. It really did, especially with Franco Nero in that, that it just, I don't know, it felt more like a Django movie. And I don't mean that yeah. just because of Franco Nero. I mean, even the character Nero plays is like a Django knockoff. I think some directors can really do that well. Like, Joel Schumacher seems to be comfortable with almost any type of movie. Like, he's made teen dramas like uh, St. Elmo's Fire. He's made, like, comedy horrors like The Lost Boys. Serious uh, social commentary black humor movies like Falling Down. He's made comic book movies like fucking Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which, say what you will about those movies, they look cool as comic book films. They're very colorful and bright and bombastic. And, and you know what? You know what? His best movie is A Time to Kill. Yeah, like he's, I, he's I, th- very... I think I think that's a fantastic movie, and it kind of shocks me that he made that right after Batman and Robin. Yeah, he's he's a really subversive filmmaker. Like he 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 seems to he doesn't seem to have a style that you can completely pinpoint. And a lot of people I think see that as like he's untalented or something. But to me, I feel like he's really versatile. And he can make just about any film. Like. Falling Down is one of my favorite movies ever. I, I show that to as many people as I can. Same with Lost Boys and same with St. Elmo's Fire. All three of them feel like they could have been directed by different people. Like, just because you can get Joel Schumacher to, to make just about any film and do it really, not just well, but like exceptional, like fantastic, like really, really well. Whereas with, with somebody like Lucio Fulci, and it's not a bad thing, just some directors are better with, with one certain genre. Fulci definitely excels in horror, horror and slasher, weird voodoo zombie stuff. Like, that's what he's good at. He, he's good at, uh, zombie mad scientists that, uh, you know, live in, live in the basement of a house and perform experiments or, you know, stuff like that or, or serial killers in New York. Um, he's good with that stuff. Not, not to say that his other movies are bad. Like, I actually really enjoy Conquest. Conquest feels a lot more like a Fulci movie than, than Massacre Time does. It does sort of feel like, you know, taking a sort of, you know, fantasy, uh, like warriors and wizards type movie, but then infusing it with like trash film, uh, Z grade stuff. Like it, it's a very, it has, it has blue neon laser arrows. That's awesome. Yeah. As blue neon lasers and a character gets gangrene, like you don't get more Fulci than that. It would it would almost be it would almost, it would be more perfect if he got gangrene on his eye. But with a guy like Fulci, yeah, I mean, yeah, horror is more his thing, and it's it's not a bad thing. That's just what he excels at. His movies are still entertaining, but he's not he's not a Schumacher. We can put it that way. He can't quite go out and make like any sort of any sort of genre. That that goes for maybe Verhoeven as well. Like Verhoeven's good with social commentary action films. Not so great with movies about strippers. When let's stick with the Italians for a sec. When a director has a certain style and another director doesn't try to ape it, but bounces off of that and still creates his own style off of that. And I'm looking at Dario Argento to to Richard Stanley. Because Argento has a very unique lighting style. Argento's lighting is always so dynamic, it usually never makes sense in the plot where this lighting would be coming from, but it looks so great you don't care. When Mm -hmm. Richard Stanley started out, like when he was making hardware, he told his DP, I want this to look like an Argento film. Lighting-wise, it does. But Richard Stanley had enough of his own style that he wasn't coming across like an Argento clone. 
Because you, just like, I mean, Richard Stanley's only made a couple of movies, but all of them feel like Richard Stanley. They don't feel yeah. like an Argento clone, but you can see Argento's influence. Is that like where Richard Stanley got it, where Scott Spiegel and Peter Berg didn't understand properly? I think with, um, like with hardware, it's a, the reason why it's not so much Argento-ish, because a lot of Argento's movies are very gothic. They, they deal with, uh, witches and, and, paranormal things and uh, violent murderers and stuff like that so when when that weird like green and blue and red neon shows up it kind of does show up for no reason because his movies tend to take place in like countryside or in like the middle of italy country picturesque parts so it's like it where? makes no sense yeah. in suspiria why it's lit like yeah. that but it's so gorgeous you stop caring exactly exactly whereas with hardware it actually makes sense it takes place in like a dystopian future it takes place in like a 2000 ad dystopia where you've got like computers and, and weird lights and robots trying to kill people it, like it kind of makes sense that there would be this like red and blue neon and stuff so yeah he he went out to do this like tribute to argento but then in a lot of ways ended up kind of coming up with his own thing because his was more of a of a futuristic story and it actually made sense for the film so it makes it feel less like an argento movie and more like an original richard stanley film uh with his take on like like a 2000 ad storyline so it, it is kind of weird when that happens but it's awesome that it happens because then it, it sort of does build uh builds like an original look for the director, even though he originally started out doing a tribute to another guy. And I think that goes even further into Dust Devil. You can really see, again, the Argento influence on the movie, yet it still is completely Stanley's style. Well, I mean, I kind of it kind of goes in the same way that uh, people who start, uh, they pick up a guitar and they really like Eddie Van Halen. They learn how to play playing Eddie Van Halen songs. But then when they go off and they start their own band, they sound, you know, they they develop their own style and play. And I think that that's the same with uh, with Richard Stanley. He grew up and he loved and admired with Argento. He liked that style. He learned from that. And then when he started working and made his own, he kind of developed his own style, but still wanted to throw in a little bit of that flavor in there, but had enough of his own talent that he made it his own. And the, unfortunately, that doesn't happen as often. Specifically wants to say fuck you to the establishment and directs a film intentionally, not just outside of their own style, outside of the norm. For instance, William Friedkin is a stalwart director. He doesn't necessarily have a style, but you, you can count on him to make a good film. Even if you don't like the final product, it's well made. Then you look at, like, To Live and Die in L.A., and he directed that movie, and he confirmed that, I, I noticed this, but he confirmed it on the commentary track, that he directed this movie like he didn't know how to direct a movie. Because, you mm. know, how they, there's normal, like, a uh, shot-reverse shot. The the actor who's talking is the one who's in frame, and then they do the reverse shot. He shot at the opposite. The actor who's talking is whose back of the head we're seeing, so we're seeing the reactions of the person they're talking to. Instead of, say, like like when when William Peterson's truck pulls up to the strip club. Normally, you'd see this, the truck pull up, and then it would cut to him going inside. 
and then the dialogue would start. Whereas Friedkin shot this showing you the truck pulling up, him getting out, shutting the door, walking in the door, and then staying on the outside of the building while the dialogue begins on the inside. He shot this movie specifically to see if he could shoot a movie that was breaking all of the tropes of how you shoot a movie. Mm. And it really gives that movie an off-kilter tone, doesn't it? Yeah, it's great because I think that um, it's showing that he's trying to do some things differently and I respect that. Now, uh, when If you didn't you, know better, you'd think he didn't know how to direct a movie, wouldn't you? Well, it's not so much that you, you don't know, but I mean like, believe me, there's a difference between breaking the usual tropes and the things that work as far as directorial wise and being James Nguyen and making Birdemic. You know, that's somebody who doesn't <laughs> know how to direct a movie. Like, what he Fair did enough. was something that was being experimental. He was trying you know, to do the opposite. He was trying to do things differently seeing what worked and what didn't work and it's amazing that he got the opportunity to do that because I have a feeling these days you would not be able to do that you'd start doing that the studio would see the dailies they'd panic and pull you off and throw somebody else in there shows the talent in a director to be to be able to do something completely considered wrong by the industry and still make a really kick-ass movie and it's not something you're really going to see in too many uh established directors nowadays like nowadays everybody is trying to make their movie as uh, as polished and as stylized as possible unless it's like a found footage film and even then like it's very booming and, and stylistic and it, it tries to be as dark and as gritty as possible you're only really going to find uh more experimental filmmakers nowadays and more of the uh the independent scene uh you're going to find it more guys like like nicholas winding refin and um guys that are i can't remember the, the name of the director but uh it, it's, it's i can list off movies like movies like uh like cold in july uh movies like green room these are a lot more experimental you know just taking concepts like like a, a punk band getting stranded somewhere and then a bunch of skinheads try to kill them and whatnot and turning it into like a slasher film there's a lot of really cool experimental indie films out there and, and they're probably not gonna end up being looked at as, as blockbuster films and that's both unfortunate on one hand but i also kind of like it i was i was talking with uh, dustin about this just the other night and i was like wanting to see more experimental films in theaters then he was like well Honestly, it's better because when you have blockbusters, the directors are usually, usually have their hands tied. They usually get their movies completely blasted in post-production and ripped apart. Whereas when you have these indie filmmakers with more modest incomes and modest budgets, they have their complete freedom and they can make whatever movie they want to make. And honestly, I like that. I like that I can, I can go see a movie like, uh, like, like The Guest or Cold in July or Blue Ruin or Only God Forgives. And that's exactly the type of movie that the filmmaker wanted to make. They wanted to shoot it a certain way. They wanted to write it a certain way. That's why the, the independent film scene is such a goldmine because you're going to get a lot of those types of experimental films like, uh, To Live and Die in LA was. Like a certain director where their visual style is so unique that it's almost become a crutch. Like, like Wes Anderson. I don't like Wes Anderson's movies. He is almost bound by Wes Anderson tropes to the point where it's almost like he just stopped caring. Like Tim Burton. Every Tim Burton movie feels like Tim Burton, but it also feels like Tim Burton gave up. Yeah, they, they clearly began to stagnate whether they, they meant to or maybe Maybe it is just stagnating, actually. It seems like that for Tim Burton. Like, he just, he found a, a certain style, and then he just kept ripping himself off over and over and over again until until it just got ridiculous. Like, the, the Alice in Wonderland movie is just a joke. I'm not even going to see the sequel. It's kind of sad to see that happen. Like, a director kind of 
kind of lose that passion and that fire to, to really, to really make a great movie. And they just kind of fall into this safe zone where it's like, well, this worked in uh last couple of movies. I'll just kind of mimic this. I'll kind of get the same actors and do the same thing again. I think it's unfortunate because I really do like a lot of Tim Burton's earlier movies. You know, I, I love Beetlejuice. I love Batman. I even like, really like Sleepy Hollow. I think Sleepy Hollow is his, like really last, last true good movie. And then he, he kind of began to stagnate. Wes Anderson, I don't really give a f about either way. I've never really cared for him as a director. I think he's definitely popular with the, the hipster crowd and whatnot. But he does, uh, from the movies of his that I've seen, he does pretty much do the, the same plinkety sh**. I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox, though, just for the... That one was kind of different just because he went for with stop frame, and I'm always a sucker for uh, stop frame animation and whatnot. But other than that, eh, either I doesn't really, I don't really care either way. I think uh, I'm I'm more more concerned with uh, directors like James Cameron not giving as much of a shit anymore. Like like when you when you compare something like Avatar to to even like True Lies or or you know, you know Terminator Two or, or the first one, it's just it's kind of sad to see how, especially with his ego, like he really thinks he's this like incredible filmmaker and he is much of his movies are comparing avatar to to a lot of his earlier works to, to something like aliens or, or to the first terminator movie is just like what the f happened man like what what happened to the movie magic dude i don't know what happened with tim burton um like is he man i like that one really hurts because pew's big adventure beetlejuice batman batman returns ed wood mars attacks like some of my favorite movies and they all have a very distinct style and they are very tim burton and then like peter said he did um the sleepy hollow which is really good and then after that he just started going downhill and all of his movies were either remakes or adaptations of something like he wasn't doing now i realize batman and batman returns and, and mars attacks were adaptations you know his stuff it just had a certain feel to it and it was just genuine and you also know a tim burton trope it will have johnny depp and helena bottom carter in it no matter whether they're miscast <laughs> or not they're gonna be in it you know post 2000 you know i mean it really wasn't uh actually when he i think uh what was it i think ed wood was so it was 94 but he didn't really become like the constant guy until, uh, you know, 2000 and on. So yeah, but now any, you know, it's always going to have Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp. And I, I, I'm kind of on a, on the fence about that because it's like, okay, well, you, you are constantly including two very talented actors. Even Kevin Smith has branched out and has gotten like, you know, other people and like he has people that are in his movies that are in all of his movies, but they're not always like the front, the front people. They're not always the main star. Like, but, but to be fair, lots of directors do that. Paul Thomas Anderson, Carpenter, Tarantino, Michael Bay, Spielberg, they use the same supporting casts over and over, but they realize they're supporting casts. That's that's the thing. You realize who your supporting cast is. And sometimes, you know, you throw him a bone, you put him in a, you know, you take like Ben Affleck and you put him at the front of Chasing Amy. You know, you you recognize, you know, who, uh, you know, hey, this guy's going to work. And, and uh, you know, but with, with Burton, it's just like, okay, uh, Johnny Depp and Lane and Bottom Carter are always going to be the main stars of the movie. And then it just, it gets really old and really annoying. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know what, what happened with him. Like, I, I don't know if it's just that, he sees what works and he just keeps doing it or because the thing is, I mean, people, they, they want it. Obviously his movies are, you know, fucking, I, I hated Alice in Wonderland, but it made a billion dollars. Wow. So, 
You know, it's... But then again, Dark Shadows was a complete bomb, as it deserved to be. But I mean, they're willing to kind of overlook if your last movie made a billion dollars. So, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what's, what's going on with him. If he just doesn't care, or if, uh, you know, that creative spark just isn't there, or if there's maybe so much pressure to perform, you know, there's so much pressure to make the next movie that makes a billion dollars that he keeps following the formula that previously worked. Oh, and I like Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, for the most part, he sticks with like, smaller, you know, uh, experimental films. He does have a lot of the same styles that he goes by. There's a lot of chatting. There's a lot of quirkiness. And unfortunately, it has kind of been absconded by hipsters. But uh, I like his stuff. It's movies that I usually can watch once, maybe twice, and, uh, you know, not watch again. But I appreciate them. And I think that uh, overall, I think that he's good. I don't think that uh, he's really... Uh, I, I wouldn't say that he's in the same vein as, like, Tim Burton. Like, at least he's still doing oddball, uh, you know, unique stuff. You hire a director with a signature style and then the entire production tell them not to use their style. This happens a lot in television. For instance, Rob Zombie and Joe Dante both said they had almost zero control when they worked on the various CSIs. And Tarantino said almost the same thing. When he did his CSIs, he got more control than Rob Zombie or Joe Dante did, but it was, no, we want your name, but you have to make it in the style of our episode. And you get certain movies like that where all of a sudden you'll hire a director with a signature style and then go, but we want you to make it like this. And you go, then then why did you hire that director? With a TV show, it makes sense because uh, show has its like flavor and that's what the audience wants. And then they'll bring in like a specific director and they'll want him to direct it, but then they want him to direct, direct it a certain way. I, I don't know. I guess they don't want it to go too far outside of what it normally is. Rob Zombie said his CSI Miami episode was the worst two weeks he's had in his professional career. I don't know. You get some uh, directors like uh, going back to Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith did a story arc on uh, Degrassi and he was allowed, you know, to kind of do it the way that he wanted. And uh, I guess it's such a smaller show you know they give them that freedom a juggernaut like csi or uh i think although with er like i know tarantino directed one like didn't they kind of let them have a little bit more of the you know of their own control to do it yeah now tarantino's csi did feel like tarantino his er did as well i don't see the point um i get that they're big shows and that they would like can find them uh, create creatively and that they, they would have to sort of go by the confines of the giant show. But in that case, it's kind of obvious what they're doing. They just want a big name. They want to be able to say, oh, you're directed by uh, Quentin Tarantino. But if it doesn't look like that director's style, what's the point? Like, that's what I loved about uh, Tales from the Crypt, is that they would always get this guest director and the episode would be made like one of their films like like the joe dante directed episodes and stuff like that there's there's his color and style and i think that's awesome when you have an anthology show but if it's a show that has its own you know specific style maybe don't do it if you're not going to actually let the director do their thing i just i don't really see the point i think it's hollow and i think it really shows the the greed of the showrunners just being like, okay, well, we're just going to get this big name attached to it and more people are going to watch the episode. Who fucking cares if it doesn't look like one of their movies? That's shady and I don't like it. What are your final thoughts on director's styles? 
Do you think that that we're kind of losing this? Because you'll notice almost everyone that we brought up tonight is from maybe 1995 and below where they started their career. Do you think that directors with imminently unique styles is kind of going by the wayside? Yes, you've got the Wes Andersons and the Rob Zombies who have a distinct style all their own. But in general, do you think a director having a signature style is becoming more rare? Yeah. When you look at uh, the majority of trailers now, or even just movies in general, like it's it's just product. They don't. Uh, you could watch a bunch of movies and not really have any idea who the who the directors are. Now, every now and then, you'll start to get. We're getting some breakout directors that have a very unique style, and they're going to go on to uh, you know greater things. But the vast majority of the stuff the, uh, that's hitting the multiplexes, the stuff that's really going mainstream, are a lot of directors that are churning out shit that anybody could have done. You know, there's no flair, there's no originality, there's nothing that couldn't have been done by somebody else. John Moore, how how the hell is is that guy still working? Every freaking movie he's done was a f- like Behind Enemy Lines, box office bomb. Fly the Na- Fly the Phoenix, bomb. The Omen, bomb. Max Payne, bomb. Oh, so what do they do? Hey, here's a billion dollar franchise. Why don't you do the next, you know, uh, Die Hard? And what happens? It's the most disliked of all the Die Hards. Only in Hollywood can you fail upwards. But then you have directors that come along that are really good. Somebody like Richard Stanley, he has like one movie that kind of goes off the, tr- off the rails because the studio panicked. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault and he gets ostracized. Meanwhile, you got a guy who's who's made bomb after bomb, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger movies. It's Chinatown, man. It's Chinatown. Forget it, Jake. I think if you want to find truly unique directors nowadays, as I said, you really got to look in the independent scene. Um, you'll find some really great stuff from guys like Adam Weingard. Uh, you'll find some really great stuff from, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, Jeremy Saulnier. Or Nier, he made uh, he made Green Room, he made uh, Blue Ruin. He makes some really cool movies. Uh, guys like Nicholas Reffin, you're gonna find some truly unique stuff. When it comes to the Hollywood stuff, you'll get some cool blockbusters here and there. Um, you know, The Revenant was awesome. Uh, Pain and Gain is great, but it's it's really a few and far between thing. If you really want to find some consistently unique stuff. You gotta look for a lot of the stuff that's not being advertised quite as much, that's gonna be direct to video, that's gonna be direct to Netflix. You might be surprised. It's gonna be some good shit. You've also got the up and comers like David Irons and people like that who are learning the craft and developing their own styles that are gonna be someone to watch out for. So, on that note, Peter Gogic's style can be seen where? It can be seen on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, on Facebook, The Cinemasochist, on YouTube, The Cinemasochist, and on 1201beyond.com, and on the GrindhouseChannel.com. Where can Cecil be located? Uh, I can be located on uh, EscapistMagazine.com, GoodBadFlix.com, and all your favorite uh, social media outlets. I can be located at 1201beyond.com, where you'll see my style. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And I'm also writing for the Grindhouse channel. I'm also writing for Fangoria magazine and Hustler magazine and forcesofgeek.com and nightflight.com. You know, with all the writing I do, I actually should be able to make a living at this. This sucks. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. This is what you want. This is what you get. 
This what you want. This what you get. This what you want. This what you get. This what you want. This what you get. This what you want. This what you get. This what you want. This what you get. This what you want. This what you get. Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.